In our last episode, we presented the first installment in a three-part series that we're calling Leadership Now. It's our evolving framework that can aid leaders in making sense of tumultuous times and help their teams come together to solve big challenges. Our last episode focused on listening deeply and the importance of holding listening circles for employees to feel truly heard. This week, we're exploring the second part of Leadership Now, uniting widely. Because once leaders have taken the time to listen to their employees' concerns, research suggests they need to find a way to bring people together around a common goal. But how to do that exactly may be easier said than done. I'm Chris Weller, and you're listening to Your Brain at Work from the Neuroleadership Institute. For this episode and the ones that follow, we'll be drawing from a weekly webinar series that NLI has been hosting every Friday. This week, we're joined by Lehigh University social psychologist Dominic Packer, who shares with us the science of group behavior, how we determine who's one of us, the consequences of doing so, and how we can expand our perceived boundaries to create larger in-groups. You'll also hear from Dr. Camilla Sipp, NLI's Senior Director of Neuroscience Research, and Khalil Smith, Head of Research and Consulting at NLI. Together, the group will share insights from experimental research that shines an important light on how disparate groups can come together for a common good. Enjoy. And so part of what we want to do today is continue to help leaders understand what you can do to be really effective in having these conversations, to reduce that overall level of threat, and to reach really positive and intentional outcomes. Um, and so to come back to this frame of listen deeply, unite widely, and act boldly. And so one thing that I want to do before we really start diving in, because I've got lots and lots of questions, Cami and, and Dominic, for you, so please get ready, because I'm going to be peppering you with a lot of these. Um, you know, this quote kind of jumps out at, I think, a, a number of us, and definitely at me as well. Um, Maya Angelou, in minor ways we differ, in major we're the same. So we're going to talk a little bit about how do you bring that together? How do you do that without reducing the distinctiveness or the um, kind of uh, um, uniqueness of any of the folks in your organization and yet still bring people together and unite widely? And when we talk about uniting widely, I really wanted to just anchor us on this idea that it's about bringing our organizations to a set of shared goals around addressing big human rights issues. There are lots of other things that we can be uniting around, but really wanted to anchor on this for this particular conversation. So the question specifically is for your organization and the uniting widely, the definition that we're going to kind of anchor on for this particular conversation and for what we've been talking about is bringing your organization to a set of shared goals around addressing big human rights issues. Um, so that's what we're thinking of when we're thinking of uniting widely. And we'll talk more generally around shared goals and how to get people just aligned around virtually anything. And yet the genesis of the article, the genesis of a lot of this conversation is around racial inequity, the George Floyd murder, what we're talking about right now as it relates to kind of civil rights and social unrest. So I really want to anchor there. But I guess first and foremost, I would just ask kind of a, a general question and I'll, I'll put it out to you, maybe Cami first and then Dominic would love to get your point of view. Why is uniting widely necessary, um, both from a scientific standpoint, but also just any experiences that you've had in that space? Why is it necessary? Yes, absolutely. This is, uh, I, I think that I'm speaking from a science perspective in, in many ways, looking at the, at the uh, as a, also as a foreigner, uh, in, in this country and thinking about uniting widely, 
when we think about it, it's way uh, more important than we think about just bridging some of the gaps that we that we experience because it's 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 going back for me to the our innate need to belong and to feel like we are understood, to feel like we are safe and protected in our environments. And when when we go through a lot of different uh, changes in life, the more we feel like we are part of the group, that we are united, that we have people behind us that's go that are going to help us and support us, the safer we, uh, we feel. And mm. we'll be discussing some of the challenges, why this is not necessarily happening so easily for us as we would hope so in just a second. But I think that for me, it's when I think about uniting widely, it's all about belonging and feeling like I have support or we have support. We can, we can support each other and move mountains much, much better than doing it by yourself and trying to push mm. the, the those big stone up the hill, so to speak. Yeah. And Dominic, would you, what would you add to that definition or from your perspective? Well, I completely agree with Cami. Um, and I would, I guess, highlight the moving mountains part. I think um, people have a real desire to engage in meaningful collective action, to feel bigger, like they're part of something bigger than just themselves. Um, and that uniting people in pursuit of, of some sort of set of shared goals is it allows organizations and groups to tap into this huge reserve of human motivation that's often untapped. Um, you know, organizations, businesses spend a lot of time talking about incentives and incentive structures, trying to get people to work, uh, to work smart and, and hard. Um, but often we're most motivated and most excited uh, about our work when it's part of something collective, when we feel like we're part of a team, we're, we're pursuing something of, of real good and value. Uh, and it's not just, you know, us alone. Yeah, love that. All right, so let's start getting into some of the meat of this. So, Kimmy, I'm going to give you probably the first tough question of our time together. Um, you know, I, I think in a lot of ways, you know, I personally, and I know a lot of others like to think of ourselves as individuals. So would love to understand just like, what are some of the most effective ways to unite a diverse and individualistic group of people? How do you take people that say, no, I'm unique, I'm myself, I'm, I'm my own person and bring us together? What can the science tell us about that? There are quite a few different, uh, different layers that we can think about it. Probably the most uh, salient for us is uh, aligning around the same shared goal. Mm. However, the importance of that would be actually doing it in a way that is not imposed by the dominant group, but rather it's, it's, it's done in a way that is uh, viewed and valued across different identities, because we need to remember that even shared goals can be problematic if we are kind of trying to blanket statement everybody uh, across the board. So uh, re remembering that we need to uh, accommodate uh, identity and kind of like come up with the contact theory, which we'll be discussing in, in a little bit, uh, and making sure that the people that we are trying to unite around the shared goal actually have also their identity intact, meaning that the racial, the, the national identities, uh, because otherwise, if we do it, uh, just impose the shared goal, we actually are trying more, much more of a, in, into going into oppressive mm. and, and uh, exclusionary uh, behavior rather than, than shared goals. So I think shared goals and experience exposure, I'm kind of like uh, uh, letting, letting uh, the punchline uh, that we are going to discuss at the end, but that would be a combination of quite a few factors, shared goals, identities, and understanding the experience that people will have. Add a little bit to that. Um, so there's really interesting research uh, actually from probably about 20 years ago now, which actually suggests that 
feeling a sense of shared identity and part of something big and collective actually might have the greatest effect on people who are more individualistic, uh, which is really interesting. So they did this study where they essentially split people based on their personality into what they called pro-socials, who were people who generally tended to contribute to a group no matter what, and a set of people they called individualists, and so they hurt their group, but they, they were interested in their own personal outcomes. And if there was a sacrifice to be made, they tended to look out for their own interests rather than their groups. But then what they did for everybody is they made them feel, well, half of their participants made them feel like they were part of this important collective and that it was a social identity they cared about. And the pro-social people, they didn't change their behavior because they contributed either way, mm -hmm. but it had a huge effect on the people who were more individualistic. Whereas if you hadn't made them feel like part of a group, they're pretty self-centered. And if you had made them feel like part of a group, it's like they're self-shifted to the group. Mm -hmm. And now they are actually contributing just as much and sacrificing just as much as the people who were pro-social based on their personalities. Thank you so much. So uh, I think that the, this is almost uh, one of the, uh, in linking us to identity, we know that as humans, we actually, we don't have just one identity, we have multiple nested identities, almost like the Russian dolls that you kind of like unpack, I, you know, like I'm a woman, I'm a scientist, I'm a dancer, I'm a painter, etc, etc. I'm, I'm Polish, so I'm disclosing quite a lot of information here um, uh, to the to the audience. And that's one of the of the uh, challenges and also the, the, the benefits of us or, or the really good things uh, that, that we contribute as, as humans, the complexity of our identities. The challenge is that as humans, already from the infancy, we are very prone and predisposed to classify uh, in-group and out-group members based on a lot of both biological traits, but also traits that are, that are, in, that are kind of like acquired, like which university I went to, which uh, city I lived in, what type of food I eat, with whom I hang out with, etc. And because of that uh, classification, we actually classify people as either friend or foe unconsciously, and that there is a definitely an impact of that on a lot of different um, behaviors that we would have anything from perception, how we perceive other people, how we interact with other people, how we are motivated to help or, or actually hurt people, as Dominic will probably speak much more to that as well, but also how much empathy and how much uh, shared experience we can have with other people. So when we think about this being such pronounced and such, such salient classification that happens outside of our awareness, especially at children already infants at the age of three months, they already have a uh, show preference for, for their own race when they look at faces instead of the uh, race of a, of a different, uh, different identity. And then we carry on with that, uh, with that classification through childhood, uh, through adulthood, and we overlay so many different identities on top of that. We're actually facing quite a lot of uh, immediate reactivity. And I think that even right now when I speak speak to uh, speak uh, here, a lot of you can actually identify with me fairly easy and some of you are very far away and you will be identifying much more with Dominic or much more with Khalil based on very different pieces of information that's so that you tag as oh that's important oh I like this oh I can relate to this oh this is really like she painter I don't like paintings etc so we can actually classify a, a lot of this and it, and it has an implication and the one of the reasons why we classify and when we have this innate uh, tendency to to classify in group and out group is that we 
one, the first and obvious one is we want to survive. We uh, developed in groups and as humans, we are not very feisty. We, in, com in comparison to other animals, we can't protect ourselves and survive on our own like looking evolutionarily uh, specifically. So we do need the group. We do need to understand who is our in-group and who is our out-group, who can protect us and who can fight with us or who can actually harm us. The other aspect is uh, we want to make sure that we reduce uncertainty in terms of how do I interact with this person? Can I trust them? Are they actually my in-group or out-group? How do I uh, go and forge for berries, so to speak, uh, with that person? And the, the last, which is not least, obviously, is the, our innate need to belong, which is kind of going back to uniting widely in a way that we really are uh, developed and, and wired to belong to groups, to, to feel like we are accepted, that we, are, we, are, we feel much safer when we are in a group than we are on the outside. And if we have a whole system that is designed to protect us from, uh, uh, from being on the, on the outskirts, so to speak. The three main uh, concepts or the three main implications, so to speak, or impact of this in-group and out-group classification that we do is the perception, motivation, and empathy, as I mentioned earlier, meaning that we perceive those from our in-group in a very different way than we do uh, those who, are, who we classify as our out-group. Mm. Uh, we are also in and that I think that Dominic, maybe you can you can help us go th go through this in, in terms of just perception. We we think of those who are who belong into our in group. We belong. We think of them as sometimes, depending when it's a team sport, we think of them as faster. We think of them as 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 uh, better. We think of them as more relatable than the other group. Um, we think about also from the uh, just looking at other people when it comes to the out group, others can show up as threat for us, as psychological and, and physiological uh, threat. And that's going to also impact how we interact with the, with the out-group members. You can see we've already discussed that we feel more favorably to people, uh, to those in our in-group and less favorably to those of our out-group. We also have very different empathic response, meaning that we feel pain, we feel the joy of those who we consider our in-group. But we are actually... Uh, feeling there, there are quite a few different studies showing that when people from, uh, when those members of our outgroup get hurt, physically they experience pain, usually in experimental setting, we, we, we kind of, we are not very nice to our subjects and we shock them with electric shocks. And, and those who are observing uh, 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 people from outside of the group, they actually get a reward response. So we get pleasure from seeing those of our outgroup uh, getting a, a little bit of an electric shock um, in the experimental setting. So that's the short and Freud response. And it's the opposite to what we feel when, when we see somebody who we, who we associated as our in-group getting shocked or getting getting pained or getting psychological pain even even being excluded from from a team and the same almost applies to uh, motivation for those who we consider our in-group we are much more likely to show kindness and help and we are much more likely to help rather than those of our out-group who we are more likely to hurt or we almost get the the pleasure of their misfortune it's, it's the, the two different uh, German words, the Schadenfreude and Glücksmerz is uh, going to kind of, uh, they impact the same way um, or they kind of belong to the same category, but they have different impact. One is uh, pain and pleasure uh, that we experience between in-group and out-group and the other one is the misfortune. Like we get pleasure from those uh, misfortune of, of, of others. And that's specifically, yeah. we can see that in 
sports. Mm. You can see that the divisions of in-group and out-group in sports, it's so pronounced and it can be so easily uh, manipulated, but the emotions are running raw in terms of us winning, uh, our team winning, we get so much pleasure. And when, when they are losing, it's actually, it's actually hurtful to, um, to us to watch. And Dominic, I would love to hear from you. I know that you've done quite a few um, uh, studies and you know a lot about the research uh, of Ingrid Baruch with uh, Jave and Bevel and, and sports. So it would be awesome to hear uh, from you. And, and actually, if I can, if I can ask you a specific question, Dominic, because I think there are a couple things that come out for me, um, you know, when I, when I hear part of this. One is, are there downsides to creating in-group? Um, and I think kind of the, the subcontext of that is, does there have to be an out-group in order for there to be an in-group? Um, and can you have too much of a good thing? Can it be bad that, yay, we're all one team now and we've all come together and so that means that everybody else is on the outside and we want nothing to do with them? Or is there a way to find kind of a universal benefit that we can lift everybody up at the same time? It's a really, really great question. I think, um... I mean, sort of definitionally, if you have an in-group, there must be other groups, right? Um, if you define your group as all of humanity, you're implying there's, you know, animal species or perhaps aliens who are, you know, outside of that. Um, but nevertheless, I think if you're in a position of leadership and you're trying to unite people around some sort of coherent identity, there's different strategies, only one of which is really highlighting divisions between your group and other groups. It's a strategy that's often used um, and there's context where it's not problematic, right? I think the sort of sporting context is one where it can be a lot of healthy competition is a good thing. Uh, but there's context where it's not a good thing. And um, fortunately, there are other means by which you can foster and build group identities by focusing on who, who are we, right? What are our traditions? What are our symbols? What are our stories? What do we value? Uh, and research shows that both of these are, are ways in which you can build identities. I think another potential pitfall um, with this idea of Unite Widely, and it's, I've seen it pop up in the comments a couple of times, is you know, people come to organizations with, as, as Cami said, a host of identities, some of which are very important to them. There's this idea in social psychology, which I, I think uh, has already been referenced, known as optimal distinctiveness, which is that we have this sort of, these dual drives, these competing motivations. On the one hand, we really do want to belong to something. Um, and this is, is a very important human motive, as, as Cammy talked about. At the same time, we don't want to have to give up the rest of ourselves simply to belong. Um, we want to maintain a level of uniqueness at the individual level, but also maintain other identities that are really important to us, right? So you go to work and you bring your gender identity with you, and you don't necessarily want to leave that at the door. You bring your racial identity with you, and you don't want to necessarily have to leave that at the door. And I think increasingly what we're seeing um, is that people are coming to work and they don't want to have to leave all of these other parts of themselves at the door. And the challenge for organizations is how do you, how do, you do that? How do you create environments where people can, can achieve that sort of level of optimal distinctiveness where, yes, there's, we are united as an organization or a team around a set of shared goals, but we also have room for people to bring their own unique experiences, talents, um, as well as some of the challenges they're facing outside of work and, and, and have it be a welcoming place that's accepting of all of that.
Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And Kimmy, there's this idea yeah. of fluidity. Um, and, and I think that that is a really valuable idea that we are not kind of fixed in a particular place. And, and our in-group is always our in-group and is always going to be our in-group, but rather that there is some degree of flexibility um, that we can be more aware of and more in control of. So I would love for you to maybe kind of talk us through um, what this means and, and how we use that as leaders. Yes, absolutely. And you are reading my mind. It's really important what, what Dominic mentions, all of those identities, we, we do bring them and we can't really shed one of them. Uh, if we do uh, at a cost, essentially, like say the psychological cost, that will be very challenging for us. And then we'll feel like we are missing a, a piece of us uh, at work or we are not seen. Uh, and I think that it's really important to remember for us that even though we do classify in-group and out-group really, really fast and automatically, we can also go in and out of that out-group and in-group. If the, the easiest example is thinking about friends. The moment uh, something happens in, in friendships, we are very in-group and we are going along. And then if there is a breakdown in friendship, whether it's a betrayal or whether it's a fight about something that is long-lasting, that is actually creates, it actually makes us more go into the out group because our goals are not the same. Our values are not the same. So there is a lot of different um, uh, levers that we can pull to switch between in and out group. The primary one or, or one, of the, one of the important ones is the superordinate goals. There's also the, the uh, understanding of identity. So the positive intergroup uh, contact that allows for identities to be kept without, with actually integrating the, the shared goal that is, that is shared across uh, many different uh, identities and people. But also the perspective taking. We, we keep coming back to understanding and, and understanding the experience of others through perspective taking and perspective getting and mm. the moment we actually bridge uh, or make uh, the distance between two people our group and in group a little bit smaller but I, by understanding the perspective of where they are coming from how they experience the world what are the concepts and what are the factors that play into the decision making is also much easier than to create much more of the in group like just having the small nuggets of information makes it easier for us to to turn the tables so to speak like oh suddenly I feel like I, I have a connection with this person that I didn't yeah. realize that I did have. And it can be the other way around. So we need to be careful. The more salient and polarizing ideas we, sh we, we put um, forefront, the more challenges we'll be, we, we may be having with actually bringing people in group if the polarization is very salient uh, right now because we'll be paying attention to the polarization much more, to the dif differences, to the distinctiveness much more. And, and that creates uh, the, more of the out-group, in-group dichotomy rather than bringing everybody in group with uh, uh, subordinate goals and perspective taking, etc. And I think that in organizations, it's really important to remember that to 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 think that even when we get this um very diverse population we keep talking uh to our clients about the importance of, of inclusion and one of the one of the mitigation strategies to find commonalities with everybody not the same commonality with everybody but the commonality between me and mary me and khalil me and dominic the things that are different for us for each of us but we have the thing together uh, and that actually can can allow for to, to bring a little bit more in-group uh, perspective, even though the distinctiveness, as Dominic was uh, mentioning earlier, is going to be kept because I'm not losing my identity as a, uh, as a, um, as a European 
suddenly when we actually uh, geek out about the brain with Dominic, so there is a different, we are nesting the identities while keeping our own identities intact and respected. Yes. And you and I are finding different things to connect with because we're not geeking out about the brain in the same way, but we do have a lot of other similarities that totally come together. I want to share a story with you and ask a quick favor. A couple years ago, the Neuroleadership Institute ran a study that asked people to engage in mock negotiations. Each person wore a heart monitor. At the end, people were told to give their partners feedback. Only for half the participants, the roles were flipped, and people were told to ask their partners for feedback. The study found something really interesting. It turned out that giving feedback and getting feedback were equally stressful. But when people asked for feedback, both partners' stress levels got cut in half. Their heart rate steadied, their anxiety faded. So that's where the favor comes in. Will you give us feedback on our podcast? We created a survey that takes less than two minutes to complete. And in return, you'll receive a free copy of NLI's latest journal paper, The Fact Model, a framework for managing cognitive capacity. To fill out the survey, all you need to do is go to neuroleadership.com slash pod survey. That's neuroleadership.com slash pod survey. So it's interesting, you know, in some ways, A, I would love for either one of you that feels comfortable with it kind of describing what is entiativity. Um, the other thing that I would call out, though, is I love kind of this connection of perspective taking because one of the things that comes up quite frequently is we have these Your Brain at Work, you know, um, sessions or we have um, all of this work that comes together. And um, we had uh, Dr. Jamil Zaki from Stanford on to talk about empathy. And we spent quite a bit of time talking, Cami, very similar to what you were just describing in terms of perspective taking and perspective getting. And so these things really do weave together. There's a lot of connection and a lot of kind of relationship between and amongst them. Um, But would anybody like to um, explain what we're talking about by diminishing and increasing entiativity? I I can take that one. It's widely agreed by social psychologists to be the worst term in social psychology. (laughs) That should be pronounced entitativity. Anyway. Yeah, I'm not um, saying that anymore. You get to say that yeah, one from it's, now it's on. A bad, it's a bad term. But um, basically, it's the extent to which you see the group as a group or how groupy it is. Um, and it's, you can think of it as how porous are the boundaries, right? So a highly entitative group is one in which it's a clear entity. You're in or you're out. We have very firm borders. And inside, we're all pretty similar to each other. Mm-hmm. And then a less entitative group would, one, would be one where you've got porous boundaries. You can come, you can go, or you can be in this group, but also in other groups. And we're not all identical to one another. Mm-hmm. And generally speaking, um, the less you see a group as entitative, uh, the more open you are to outsiders, to divergent views, uh, and so on. Good. I want to get us to kind of how to scale some of this and what it means to to kind of take this into practice, because we've talked a little bit about what it is, what some of the challenges may be. I know there are a lot of folks that are asking questions like, okay, so so what do we do with all of this now? Um, So I want to kind of give, Kimmy, you a little bit of space to talk about um, some things that we can do and things that we can be equipping our leaders to do um, to really focus on uniting widely. Um, So you can talk us through kind of these three elements and what these mean and what we should be doing with leaders. Absolutely. Thanks, Carol. So I, I've already kind of like let the cat out of the bag at the at the beginning, saying that we, when we think about what we can do, there are among many other things, but there are three main facets that we can think of, of three core factors that, that leaders can think of and, and understand the drawbacks and also the benefits that we've been already discussing to, uh, to make sure that they unite widely 
there are three main exposure experience and and shared goals and we even though they are connected concepts they also have a distinctive parts so the exposure part is just uh, understanding that sheer exposure in terms of creating a diverse um, workforce but just being with other people around us we can create a, an exposure that can actually help within bridging experience and shared goals much better the important thing is to remember though that in organizations, we already have a power dynamic and structural uh, systems that are, that are by um, default exclusionary. So when we think about the structure of a big corporation and the C-suite is on the level on floor seven and the mailroom is only on the, on the ground floor, we are already creating the structure that is limiting the exposure in quite significant manner in terms of different groups and different identities bridging and kind of going in between um, uh, each other to, to, to be exposed to each other's uh, behavior and actions and, and, and um, different ways way of uh, reacting. And it's something that we need to be aware of this is not to say that leaders needs to we need to scramble the offices and 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 make everything on one floor but there is a, there is definitely a uh, structural and hierarchical obstacle that is already there for us and and addressing that exposure uh, level would be really important uh, to mitigate some of the some of the uh, obstacles that would uh, show up when it comes to unite widely very similar is the concept of experience. Experience, when we were talking previously, is not just doing something with other people, but understanding how they are experiencing that. We are sharing emotions when, when we are interacting with other people. And the, the aspect of perception and experience are indistinct. I mean, they are connected very much so. You can't have perspective taking without experience, and you can't really have experience without understanding perspectives of your own, but also on other, of, of, of other people. And you think that um, sometimes the exposure and experience can be can be challenging. Imagine in inviting um, the C-suite level invites all the low managers, or, or let, let's think about the lab rather. Um, if the lab uh, professor invites their his or her students to a party and they bring cheaper wine because they have a different status, different socioeconomical status. The experience and the exposure of that is already shifted in some ways that is not the most optimal. So correcting or accounting for those differences that are there structurally would be very important to enable the experience to be much more cohesive mm -hmm. and beneficial rather than polarizing again and exposing some of the challenges. Just really quickly, I was going to say, to, to me, that kind of, I was looking through, I think it might have been Twitter earlier today, um, and someone was referencing golf outings um, and mm. saying that for them, that was a perfect encapsulation of what you're describing, which is in, a, in an effort to be inclusive, the senior leader said, well, let's go all go out and golf. Um, and yet, you know, people's exposure to it, their experience with it, their comfort level around it um, was so varied that that experience didn't actually increase exposure or kind of sheer goals in the way that they would have hoped it would. Um, so I just it, like that jumped out to me as you were talking through it. Absolutely, and the same, the same, the same concept refers to the 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 uh, golfing is one one aspect. The, the uh, is very similar is like the old boys club when we have oh we we invite um when you think about gender diversity we invite and we have diverse uh, workforce but then we go and do things that are specific much more specific to one group over another so again like this we are kind of uh 
by default, by assuming something that we are doing it right, we are not taking out the identity that uh, uh, Dominic was mentioning earlier. And we are creating, we are almost exacerbating the challenges rather than make make it better. Um, and then it's it's you know it's it's linked to the to the shared goals. We also can think about the assimilation aspects and and creating an identity shared identity or shared goal for many different uh, identities. But there needs to be a space that is then linked to the exposure and experience that allows for the identities to show up and allows for, for, for those who don't want to go but want to do something else that they can also participate in a different activity that is not exclusionary if they don't they don't have the golf clubs. They they they've never been to a golf cor golf course. There is there there are structural things that we need to pay attention to. And I know that I can see that Dominic is is uh, uh, nodding. Well, I, I agree with everything Cami just said. So there's a I mean there's a long history of research on on contact between groups. It's a really intuitive thing, right? If if you get members of different groups to interact, surely they'll learn about each other and 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 come to like each other more. And this can only be a good thing for for intergroup relations. And what we've seen historically is that it doesn't always work out that way, right? Interactions don't always go well. And one of the things Cammy's talking a lot about is the hierarchy. And so we, we know quite a lot about what you need in place to have those interactions be fruitful ones that people actually do start to like each other more and, and empathize with each other more and engage in that perspective taking. And one of them is equal status or power. And it turns out to be crucial. It doesn't help very much if you know, every male in your organization is in a high status role and every female is in a low status role. They're going to interact a lot, but it's not necessarily going to improve gender relations or certainly improve the status of those women. And I think what this really speaks to is the importance of representation of groups at all levels of your organization, right? Mm -hmm. You need you need people of underrepresented racial groups. Uh, you need women. You need um, other kind of minorities at the top of your organization so that there really is equal power and equal status as people interact across group lines. I think that's a critical thing. Um, and then the only other thing I'd say is that when you're talking about scaling, like, I mean, it's, it's the million dollar question. How, how do you scale these kind of things? Early on where I think the majority of respondents had said that what most of the information they were getting about this kind of thing was, you know, messaging from CEOs in the form of a memo or an email or maybe a, some sort of mission statement. All I can say with regard to that is that people are watching what you do just as much or perhaps more than what you say, right? Mm -hmm. That it's a nice thing to, to say these things, that we have shared goals, that we are all on board, the particular human rights issue, for example. Um, but they're going to be looking to see where's your budget going? Yep. Are you spending money in these areas? Um, how do you treat violations, right? Like if, if, if there's behaviors that are problematic at work, what's happening? Right. Yeah. Are you responsive to those? Are you attending to those? What kind of metrics are you collecting? Right. Are you interested in inclusion statistics? You know, not just how how well are you hiring uh, diverse groups, but are people sticking around? Do people stay want to stay in your company over time? Um, and if you're not collecting the data, or you're not interested in it, or you're not spending the money where it needs to get spent, then the words ultimately come across as hollow, and there aren't going to be shared goals. Right. No matter what you say. 
Yeah, such a great yeah. point. And I think there's going to be a lot of connectivity to what we'll talk about next week in terms of act boldly. But I love, you know, the connection that you made, Dominic, as well to the, to the idea of representation, because I know for many of the folks on the line, this comes back to, so what, what should I be doing in my organization? What should we be doing in our organization? And, and we do see at times some of that um, stratifying that happens where it's like, well, in our call center, we've got incredible diversity and that, that absolutely buoys the numbers in our organization. Um, and yet at the more senior your levels, it's not there. And so what are some of the things we can do? And what are some of the implications around that? Um, I do want to go really quickly to a question that came in, which is a bit of a challenging one for you two. So I apologize in advance. Um, the question is, um, is there a point of no return when an out group is dehumanized by the in group? Um, so is there and maybe not even dehumanized, but is there ever a point where you would just say, unfortunately, the relations have devolved so far that it's going to be virtually impossible to use some of the things that we're describing to shift? Um, or is there always a way to create the shared goals and the experiences and the exposure that would create the change that we're talking about? That's a great question, uh, Dominic, and I, I definitely want to lean on you as well. I think that my, my response to that would be, I hope... I hope there is always a chance. The, the, the thing that we need to remember is that at some point when, when essentially a conflict reached such an aggravated state, uh, there needs to be concession, obvious and transparent and consistent concessions to bring the, the trust back, to, to eliminate some of the discrepancies and some of the kind of like um, um, confrontational uh, attitudes that, that were there to begin with. So, so I think that it's not a matter of just let's just discuss this because at the end of the day, mindset is one thing, but the structure around the mindset in which we are operating, that needs to change. So sometimes we think, oh, if we just have a growth mindset or if we just think differently, it's going to change. But we come out of those discussions and we go back to the world in which all the other um, media and everything that we are surround our neighborhoods everything is kind of like creating the and, and sending the signals of different saliency so i think that we need to think it, about it from a structure perspective and mindset perspective we can't just go one and yeah. and hope that there's going to be a change that would be my response I, i'm hopeful um uh, dominic i'm gonna uh, hand it over to you yeah, I, I agree. I'm, I'm hopeful, but it can be incredibly difficult if it's reached the point of, of dehumanization, which is often a very dangerous point to be at, you know, where, where people are now seeing other people as less than human. Good things never come from that. And you, I, I think there are certainly historic examples of, of groups getting past it, but it takes a huge amount of work. It takes a huge amount of leadership. Um, you can think about contexts like South Africa at the end of apartheid, right? The, the truth and reconciliation process was... Um, probably not entirely successful, but uh, certainly made strides toward reconciling relations between white and black South Africans. But it was incredible leadership that got them there and, uh, and you know, really difficult process to go through. Um, there's a really nice study, uh, I'm forgetting the name of the author, which I regret, but um, of a researcher who did work in uh, North, Northern Iraq uh, after ISIS, which had occupied the territory left. And while ISIS was there, uh, there were both Christian and Muslim uh, residents who essentially fled and then came back uh, to an incredibly, you know, war-torn region of the country and with really, you know, disrupted relations between the two groups. And as this research project, uh, what they did is they created um, local SOC teams involving um, teenage boys, I think, um, 
And on some teams, they were uh, all from one religion. There were either Christian teams or Muslim teams. And on other teams, they were assigned to mixed religion teams, uh, where it was half Muslim boys and half Christian boys. Um, and they played in the soccer league for a season, and then they followed them up over time, and they found that the boys who had played on the mixed religion teams subsequently had significantly better relations with members of other religious groups, were more excited about playing in a mixed religious league the next year. Um, and that kind of cooperative unified, you know, we, we want to win as a soccer team environment was conducive to those relations. But I would, in closing, I guess, of this remark, just go back to what Cammy was saying about ultimately structures really matter. And you can't just say, oh, it's all great. You know, these boys liked each other more and say, job done. You also want to pay attention to what's the conditions on the ground for these people, for their families. Do they have equal opportunity? Uh, because if you don't address those problems, ultimately, you're not going to solve the bigger issue. Love it. What a great place for us to kind of wrap. Um, I, I love this idea of, you know, we're, we're all, I think, uh, cautiously optimistic, right, that the research can inform some of that. And yet what I heard you both say is that leadership really matters, structures really matter, um, following through on the behaviors that we're describing and kind of the pros and cons of that really matter. Um, and so that's uh, an amazing kind of takeaway for our group. I will just say, Dominic and Cami, thank you so much for this conversation. I always thank learn you. a ton when thank I talk you. to both of you and either of you. Your Brain at Work is produced by the Neuroleadership Institute. You can help us in making organizations more human by rating, reviewing, and subscribing wherever you get your podcasts. Our executive producer for Your Brain at Work is Noah Gelb. Danielle Kirschenblatt is our editor. Gabriel Berzin, our associate producer. And Cliff David, our production manager. Original music is by Grant Zubritsky. And logo design is by Catch Ware. We'll see you next time.